since uh, preaching on the ordinance of baptism last week, I have known that this message was coming up on the Lord's Supper this week, and I really wanted to present something new and fresh. Let me tell you, that is the kind of thinking that will absolutely destroy a pastor with unnecessary pressure. (laughs) Thankfully, I took a break from the stress and watched the Atlanta Braves play a baseball game. Some of y'all knew that at some point the Atlanta Braves were going to end up being a sermon illustration. So here you go. This is probably as close as you're going to get. All four players of the Braves infield, first, second, third base, and shortstop, were named to the All-Star team this year. And yet, sitting and watching them in pregame warm-ups, there's an infield coach. There is this old guy named Ron Washington who goes through drills with each of the infielders before every game. And it's nothing fancy. It is the exact same drill you can find little leaguers doing before their games. They're on their knees. Wash gets there about six feet away from them and gently bounces the ball off the ground into their waiting glove over and over and over and over again. There's never going to be a time where the fundamentals of the game become unimportant and there's never going to be a time where the fundamentals should be taken for granted. It is the repetition and simplicity of the basics stressed over and over that provides a foundation for success. So that's the illustration. The Lord's Supper is foundational. It is a basic element of Christian truth. Maybe you know, we're going to be going over the same old ground this morning. There's not going to be anything new and fresh in that sense. Spiritually speaking, just hold up your glove and let me bounce the same truth into it that you've received a hundred times before, and I trust that your walk and my walk with the Lord will be better off for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read verses 17 through 34. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before others his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. 
After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. One of the reasons the letter to the church at Corinth is so helpful and instructive is the church at Corinth was horrible. I mean, y'all, they were just awful. It's doubtful that if this church existed today and was in our town, we would want to have anything to do with it. I've said before, it seems to have existed with the sole purpose of being a good example of a bad example. It is a disobedient, degenerate, divided, dishonorable assembly, and yet even this church at Corinth was an assembly which the Lord Jesus accepts as his own. When such a church gathers, it finds itself going through the motions of worship without ever managing to be led of the Holy Spirit, to please God the Father, or to honor the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them. To be clear, that's not my assessment. That's what the Apostle Paul tells them. He says in verse 17, he has nothing good to say about the way that they're coming together because it's, quote, not for the better, but for the worse. So much so that even when they assembled to take of the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 20, one thing that they can be certain they are not doing is taking the Lord's Supper. Which, when you think about it, is a surprising assessment. When they came together, weren't they eating the bread and drinking the wine and saying the right words? Yes, they were. They were going through the motions of worship, but any church can go through the motions of worship without truly pleasing the Lord. In the last half of 1 Corinthians 11, which we've read, the Apostle Paul addresses this problem church specifically about their observance of the Lord's Supper. And he does it in three ways. And we'll look at them this way. In verses 17 through 22, he rejects their misuse of the Lord's Supper. In verse 23 through 26, he reminds them of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And in verses 27 through 34, he urges them to respect the manner of the Lord's Supper. 
the simple lesson of this text, verse 17 through 34, is going to teach us the Lord's Supper is an act of worship in which the assembly of believers draws together and nearer to one another by drawing nearer to the Lord Jesus. I'm going to say that again because the entire message is going to be aimed at proving that point. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship in which the assembly of believers draws nearer to one another by drawing nearer to the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's look at how Paul breaks this down. First, he talks about he's rejecting their misuse of the Lord's Supper. Verses 17 through 22. Let's read it again. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now we need a little bit of background about the practice of the earliest churches in regard to the Lord's Supper in order for us to really grasp what Paul's describing here. You should not picture the church at Corinth as attending in a fancy building that has this table up front that says, this do in remembrance of me, so that when they observe the Lord's Supper, they would all gather around it and they would take their tiny little piece of bread and their little sanctified thimble full of wine. The earliest churches did not observe the Lord's Supper that way. Instead, they would have something more like what we're going to do after service today. There would be a fellowship meal. By the way, I just committed one of the top ten pastoral mistakes. I brought up lunch when I still have preaching to do. Some of y'all, I'm never going to get back. They would have a fellowship meal. So picture them like this. The members of the church at Corinth would come together in the assembly and they would take their crock pots and they would go plug them in downstairs while they had service and then they would have a fellowship meal afterward. They even had a term for this fellowship meal in early churches. They called it a love feast. That sounds nice, right? A love feast. Well, it sounds nice, but just wait until you hear how this church at Corinth did it. If it sounds odd to you, that the Lord's Supper would be part of a bigger meal, that's just because that's not what you're used to. The original supper was enacted by the Lord Jesus as part of the Passover meal, right? And it's evident that the early churches saw taking meals together as an act of unity in which they would take the Lord's Supper while they fellowship together. So Acts 2 describes the church at Jerusalem breaking bread together daily. Early Christians uh, would write about these love feasts. And even one writer in the New Testament 
Jude, back just before Revelation, Jude referenced them in Jude verse 12. He calls false teachers entering and corrupting the church, quote, spots in your feasts of charity, or in other words, blemishes in your love feasts. So, if the false teachers coming in were, were blemishes, they were stains on a church's love feasts, the fellowship meals that were going on at the church of Corinth, I don't even know how to describe them. I mean, it's pretty bad when the Holy Spirit of God moves the heart of the apostle to tell a church the way y'all are assembling together are making things worse, not better. I will not praise you for this. Because instead of building up the body of Christ, he says you're tearing it down. Instead of unifying believers, you're causing divisions. Instead of observing the Lord's Supper with honor, the end of verse 21, some of of y'all are getting drunk in church, Paul says. Instead of honoring the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus, they're making a mockery of it. Well, how is it that they're making a mockery of it? Look at verses 18 and 19. For first of all, When you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul says that there, there, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. The word for divisions there is the word for schisms or splits, right? There's division. And actually, the word heresy, which he uses in verse 19, is talking about the same kind of thing. We usually talk about the word heresy like someone has taught something that is not scriptural, so it's heresy. But this word heresy that Paul uses means factions or cliques. So follow what he's saying. In verse 18, there's divisions among you, and there must be these cliques, there must be these these factions within the church. He's describing the divisiveness that exists within the church of believers who are not getting along with one another or even associating with one another. Those words he uses at the end of verse 18, I partly believe it. <laughs> Y'all, those words really sting. Can I, can I just exegete the white spaces for a second? I mean, read between the lines. To paraphrase what Paul is implying here is to say, I've been told that you are dividing up into clubs and cliques within the church. And while it is hard to believe that any church would do such a thing, what I already know about you makes it obvious that at least to some extent, it's just got to be true. We might wonder, well, what divisions, what What factions, what splits existed within the church at Corinth? And I'm sure we don't have all the details. But y'all, we have some of the details. Look back, leave a bookmark here in chapter 11, obviously, but look back in chapter 1 for a moment. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says, Now I beseech you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
For it has been declared unto me, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe. Can I just pause for a second and say, not only does Paul say someone tattled, he says who it was who tattled. It's been declared unto me of you, my brothers, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. They were divided up according to their favorite teachers. Some bragging about they were following Paul's teaching, some saying they were following Apollos' teaching, some say they were following Cephas or Peter, the Apostle Peter's teaching, as if those three men were teaching something different. They weren't. And the fourth group here sounds super spiritual, right? I am of Christ. But that's, it's not good like it sounds that it's good. What they're saying is, I've got it all together and I don't need any human teacher telling me what God's word says. We've got Jesus, so we don't need anybody teaching us. No doubt other factions existed also over the case of the immoral man in chapter 5. Paul describes there was a man who was having a sexual affair with his stepmother and some folks in the church were actually proud of it and hadn't put him out of the church. Meanwhile, there's another kind of division found in our text on top of all of that in chapter 11. Paul describes this fellowship meal in Corinth and says you've got people dividing up into factions and a couple of those are wealthy people separating from poor people. Look verses 21 and 22. For in eating, every one of you takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So just imagine it this way. After church this afternoon, you go downstairs to the fellowship hall, to find that the food has all been picked over already. And there is a group of folks who decided to tell everybody that the fellowship meal starts at 1 p.m. and they got there at 12.30 and started chowing down. There's a couple of guys over in the corner hitting refills of the communion wine. And you know it's wine, by the way, because they are getting drunk. There's a wealthy family who showed up right on time, just with everybody else, to participate in this love feast, but they had put a keep out sign on their crock pot. That's ours, that's not yours. And there's some poor family who arrived, bringing what little they could, looking forward to their first good meal in a week, to find out there's nothing there for them. You're feeling the love in this love feast, right? Yeah, me neither. Now, is it wrong to have close friends in the church? No. In fact, we should all be close. And if you want to have personal fellowship, Paul says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? I know that there are some churches who have said, look, we, 
you're not allowed to have any kind of food in the church building because Paul says you have houses to eat and drink in. And so if we make a fellowship hall, it has to be completely separate from the church. Look, that's not what Paul's talking about here. If you want to have personal fellowship, you can do it in your house, invite somebody over, but don't come into the assembly gathering with believers and start putting up a fence around your little club. If you're going to behave like that, you can get everything else right and still be wrong. You can go through all the motions, and it's just that. It's just going through the motions. This church is just a mess. And when they get this letter from Paul, they expect that he's going to heap praise on them for how great they are. And he does when he can, like up in verse 2, but... When it comes to these divisions and factions and supposed love feast fellowship meals and thinking that they can take the Lord's Supper that way, there's no way. Paul says in verse 17, he begins verse 17 and ends verse 22 by saying, I've got no praise for this. There's literally nothing good I can say. What I can say is whatever it is y'all think you're doing, what it is not for sure is it is not taking the Lord's Supper. Don't call it that. And listen, it is possible for us to be guilty of this. You need to look in your own heart and ask God to expose sin if it's there. But we can get so proud about the way we go through the motions the right way. Right? Oh, we know the Lord's Supper is unleavened bread. We know the Lord's Supper is fermented wine. We know the Lord's Supper is restricted to church members only. And y'all, all those things are true. But you know that's not enough, right? You can do all that right and still be wrong. Verses 17 through 22 is rejecting their misuse of the Lord's Supper. Then he's remembering the meaning of the Lord's Supper, verse 23 through 26. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The Apostle Paul's cure for the disease of divisions in Corinth was to remind the church about the meaning of the Lord's Supper in verses 23 through 26. And I'm going to appeal to you. Do not forget where we just were, right? The ground that we just covered in this chapter. Because it's possible for us to come here and focus on verse 23 through 26 and learn about the meaning of the Lord's Supper and somehow miss that Paul's teaching this as part of a practical lesson to the church at Corinth. And so we're going to deal with verses 23 through 26, 
But Paul is doing this as a means of correcting a problem and he gets right back to that problem in verse 27 through 34. So don't forget the context. If you want to partake of the Lord's Supper in a God-honoring way, you must remember, Paul says, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now in teaching what the Lord's Supper is, Sometimes it's just as easy to talk about what the Lord's Supper is not, because Paul makes those things clear here. First, (laughs) it's not for everybody. Here at our church, we hold that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It is intended for the membership of the church to observe together in honor of the Lord Jesus. This means that the supper is for believers and not just any believers, but believers who are a member of this church. Now there's several views about the Lord's Supper and who should be allowed to take it. Some hold to open communion, which is like all believers are welcome to take the supper. Some hold to close communion, which is any believer of, quote, like faith and order. In other words, people who believe and believe like us are welcome to partake. And some hold to closed communion that only believers who are members of this local church are to participate. And that's what we hold here. We don't believe it because it's easy. We believe it because we see that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, some of you may or may not have struggled from time to time explaining this to a friend or family member. But I assure you, the pastor gets an earful from time to time. Back in chapter 5, as Paul was dealing with that immoral man, right, the one who was having the sexual affair with his stepmother, not only does Paul advise discipline from the church to put that man out of the assembly, But he also says in chapter 5, verse 11, that with people in such sin, you should, quote, not even eat with such a person. Now, we could argue that Paul means don't have a fellowship meal with them, but it is hard to imagine that Paul means that the sin is so severe that you shouldn't associate with them in any kind of meal except the very most important meal of spiritual significance. Or let me say it this way. If, if Paul means that you can't sit down and have a cheeseburger with them at McDonald's, surely he doesn't think it's okay to have the Lord's Supper with them. He goes on to say in the next verse, in chapter 5, verse 12, that it is the church's responsibility to judge those on the inside. So if you are not part of the church and under the church's authority, under the discipline of the church, you should not expect to take the Lord's Supper with the church. Look at how frequently Paul makes it evident that the Lord's Supper is an act of a church, an assembly in unity. He says in verse 17, he speaks of them coming together for the better or the worse. In verse verse 18, he talks about when you come together in the church or in the assembly. In verse 20, when you come together into one place, he uses that phrase, come together twice more in verses 33 and 34. The Lord's Supper is an act of unity in the church. When the assembly comes together, 
obviously, the church at Corinth was blowing that pretty bad, right? But it's still what it should be. So, if you or some friend or family of yours struggles with this truth and considers it to be unfair, I would just try to remind them that the New Testament knows nothing of a church uh, of a Christian who refuses to be a church member. If you are a member of a church, observe the Lord's Supper with the church you are a member of. If you're not a member of the church, you should join a church and observe the Lord's Supper with the church that you joined. But if you refuse to be part of a church, you are in active rebellion to the Lord Jesus. And we are about to see that denying the Lord's Supper to someone in such disobedience might, in fact, be the kindest thing you can do. The Supper is not for everybody. Also, it is not literally Jesus' body and blood. Other words of the Lord Jesus recorded faithfully in verses 24 and 25, right? This is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. It is not the purpose of the Lord to say that the bread and wine literally becomes his body and blood. The bread and wine are bread and wine. They're that way before the Lord's Supper. They're that way when you take them, right? Both times the Lord Jesus uses this, this, these terms about, well, this is my body, this is my blood. He qualifies the teaching by immediately saying, do this in remembrance of me, right? It is a reminder of his body. It is a reminder of his blood, right? If his body and blood are right in front of me, if I'm actually holding on to them, I don't have to be reminded of them. I've got them right there. He's talking about it being a reminder. It's being symbolic. It is not the literal body and blood. It's even more powerful than that. You know, Roman Catholics observe mass, is what they call it, every week. And in that mass, they take bread and wine and they say it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. It's not a memorial. It is Here's literally the body and blood of Jesus. Take this and then come back next week and we'll give you some more. That just loses something. But for us, this acts as a reminder that Jesus has already completed everything required to provide for his people. It is as if to say, my body was broken. Take this broken bread and remember what I've accomplished for you. My blood was poured out. Drink this cup and recall how I've provided for the needs of your soul. I noted last week that the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are symbols of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Both preach the gospel. In baptism, you're saying, Jesus died and was buried and rose again for me, and just like that, I am identifying with him. My old self is to be Buried under the water, it is to rise again to walk in new life. In the Lord's Supper, you're saying, at this moment, I am reminding myself of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. They are, they are my food. They are what sustains me. His sacrifice is what gives me life. And if you wonder, well, what's the big deal about the Lord's Supper? 
I would tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ is the big deal about the Lord's Supper. That the Son of God himself took on flesh, became human, lived the perfect life that we failed to live. That he, though he was perfect, went to the cross, taking the sins of his people onto himself so that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed as a punishment for the sins I've committed. And that he was buried and that he rose again to to live forever and can give everlasting life to all who believe. That's part of what the Lord's Supper is about. Third, it's not bestowing grace on you. In the Roman Catholic system, there is the idea that you can actually receive grace through these different acts that the church can administer. Right? You can receive the grace of God by being baptized, by taking communion. That's why they come and they observe it every week. Right? Uh, You know, take some grace today and come back and you can get some more grace next week. But we understand the Bible teaches the sacrifice of Jesus was done once for all. It was done one time for all time. We don't need more than Jesus. We have Jesus and when you trust him, he saves you completely. Although if we could do something... To get more grace, it would not be grace anymore. You realize grace is unearned favor. That's the definition of the word. There's nothing you can do to earn more unearned favor. Fourth, it's not all about the past. It's not all about the past. Not only does the Lord's Supper preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. It preaches the good news of his second coming in the future. On that night, think think back to what you know about the gospel story. On that night, that final Passover they were observing, (coughs) when the Lord instituted this memorial supper, he told his disciples to all drink of the wine and said, but I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is not only about what Jesus has done, it is in expectation of what the Lord Jesus will do. It's because of this that Paul says, look at verse 26. Whenever you take this, You do show the Lord's death till he comes. Observing the Lord's Supper is an act which is intended to declare the gospel of Jesus, serve as an encouragement to believers about the expectation of Jesus' return and our uniting with him in glory. It is a time of remembrance intended to draw our hearts and draw our thoughts closer to him. And if that's the case, then how often should we do it? Well, there's no biblical clarity on that question. I want to say this. Roman Catholicism is not wrong for observing things every week. They're wrong for doing it every week the way that they do it. There are churches that believe like us who observe the Lord's Supper every week. 
I personally think that's a little over the top, but I can't look at it biblically and say that it's wrong. There's others that observe it every month or every quarter. What we do at our church is, you know, some pastoral guidance. We don't have a a set time on when we observe the Lord's Supper. The biblical guidance in verses 25 and 26 is as often as you eat it, as often as you drink it. The biblical concern is not how often, but how. And so now it's time to remember the context of Paul's problem with the church at Corinth. He's not telling them how often to observe the Lord's Supper. He's concerned with how they observe it. Or actually, he's told them that the things that they're doing right now precludes them from observing the Lord's Supper. Like, it is impossible that what you're doing, the way that you're doing it, is the Lord's Supper, right? Verse 20, this is not the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, if the Lord's Supper preaches the gospel of Jesus, reminding us that his shed blood and his broken body purchased our reconciliation to God, and as I have tried to hammer in through all of Ephesians, all those whom Jesus has reconciled to God, he has also reconciled to one another. So that the supper is this function of the assembly coming together, reminding ourselves of the work of Jesus, reassuring ourselves that we will someday, in Jesus' words, fellowship with him in the Father's kingdom, then how could the church be observing that ordinance while continuing to treat other church members as second-class citizens of the kingdom? So after rejecting their misuse of the Lord's Supper and remembering the meaning of the Lord's Supper, Paul comes right back around to respecting the manner of the Lord's Supper. Verse 27 through 34. Wherefore, because of all that, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause... Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. That's a whole lot to unpack this far into the sermon, right? I'm going to try to be relatively brief, relatively. Paul's continuing argument started all the way back in verse 17 with describing the problems at Corinth. Church members were being selfish, they were being arrogant, they were being divisive. And so even though they went through all the right motions, they weren't really observing the Lord's Supper because they had lost touch with the purpose. Not only were they failing to actually observe the Lord's Supper, 
what they were doing was so unworthy of the name of the Lord Jesus that in verse 27 he says they were guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The act of partaking in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is a sin against the Lord Jesus himself. All sin is a sin against the Lord Jesus himself. And so, get this, in failing to focus on the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, the church at Corinth was committing the very kind of sin for which the body of Jesus was broken and his blood was shed. This is a, a somber indictment. It is such a weighty concern that many through the years have erroneously decided that the best way to avoid such a sin is to simply abstain from taking the Lord's Supper altogether. And I know they can sound super spiritual when they do it. I know because there was a time when I did it. I don't want to be guilty of taking unworthily and I know I'm unworthy so y'all go ahead and I'm just going to sit here and watch or maybe I'm just going to be conspicuously absent that day. Listen carefully. Refusing to take the Lord's Supper out of a concern of being unworthy to take it is itself an act of grievous sin that is unworthy of a Christian. Again, I'm going to repeat that one. Refusing to take the Lord's Supper out of a concern of being unworthy to take it is itself an act of grievous sin unworthy of a Christian. If the bar that is set for participation in the Lord's Supper is being worthy, in the past 2,000 years, who would ever have been qualified to observe the Lord's Supper? Nobody. Any of y'all count yourselves worthy? Even a church with as much of a certifiable mess as this church at Corinth, Paul does not give them advice and say, what y'all need to do is just stop taking the Lord's Supper until you're worthy. In fact, it's evident that what he wants them to do is fix the problem in their heart and then partake of the Lord's Supper so that the motions aren't just going through the motions, but they're actually meaningful. Y'all listen, it's obvious there's even more problems than what Paul has described here in this chapter. This is just enough to get them started. He says at the end of verse 34, the rest I will set in order when I come. Or in other words, do this and I'll fix the rest when I get there. So instead of the idea of partaking unworthily, this is talking about doing it in an unworthy manner. It's not about whether or not you're doing it or whether or not you're worthy of it, but it is how you are observing the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in this text does Paul tell any church member that they should, you know, sit out for a while until they're worthy again. To the contrary, look at verse 28. He makes it very clear, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The goal of this self-examination is not disqualifying yourself from taking the Lord's Supper. It is preparing yourself to take the Lord's Supper. Now, it is serious for sure. Even when he says that, this unworthy manner in which some have been going through the motions has led in verse 30 to 
Many weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Or in other words, some of the church have gotten sick and others have died because of this. Listen, God's not going to put up with his children wallowing in sin and he's not going to put up with his children mistreating his other children. I really think one of the implications of verse 30 is like it or not, some of God's people are going to be brought up to the glory to the sound of, you have finished your course, well done, you good and faithful servant. And some will arrive to the tune of, I mercifully ended that so you didn't mess up any worse. Paul's admonition here is for self-examination, leading to correction that leads to participation. The specific concern of self-examination is in verse 29, that he eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. He eats and drinks damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So as we start to wrap up here, I've got to challenge you to ask yourself, what does Paul mean by not discerning the Lord's body? Because you know full well that Paul can and does use the Lord's body in more than one way, right? He uses it to talk about the physical body of the Lord Jesus, that body that was nailed to the cross, that body that was broken and the blood was shed. And he uses it to talk about the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus, the church that represents Christ in the world. So, in the context here, which way is he using that in the text? Both, maybe. Listen, he uses the term body in this text to describe the physical body of Christ in verse 24. He quotes Jesus saying, this is my body which is broken for you. He does it again in verse 27 to say that partaking in an unworthy manner is a sin against the body and blood of Christ or of the Lord. But throughout this section, this text is concerned about the assembly, the, the body of Christ, the church, and how its members are treating one another. And so for the sake of clarity, you can glance back if you want it. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, when Paul is clearly talking about the Lord's Supper, and he speaks of the bread symbolically, reminding the church that we are one body, just like that bread is one bread. So do you think Paul's concern in verse 29 is about eating and drinking damnation to yourself because you have not discerned the physical body of the Lord Jesus or that you are not discerning about the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus? You know, when you observe the Lord's Supper, remember that it symbolizes the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And so do not partake of it in an unworthy manner. Or as he's saying, when you observe the Lord's Supper, don't forget it is a reminder of the unity of the body of the Lord Jesus, the church. So remember to consider your brothers and sisters so you can partake of it in a worthy manner. Y'all, I think the point of this text is going to tell us we better do both. We have to observe the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus, that that is what sustains us, that is what gives us life, and we expect to be united with him someday in the Father's kingdom. 
and we have to observe the Lord's Supper as an assembly of the Lord Jesus, united as his body, and never treat other members of the Lord's church as if they are second-class citizens of that kingdom we're waiting for. And if we fail in either one of those, we can go through all the right motions, right? And they were going through the motions. They were, they were drinking a little bit of bread. They were, they were drinking a little wine. They were eating a little bread. They were saying the right words. But everything they were doing was never truly the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is an act of worship in which the assembly of believers draws nearer to one another by drawing nearer to the Lord Jesus. That's what this text describes. Okay. 